Hello. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 20th of December. Um, today I wanted to have a guest on and I was a bit reticent to have this topic, not the guest. I'm very excited about the guest, but the topic itself I was a bit reticent about because when people on our Discord server were responding to whatever the new direction of the show might be. Somebody actually said uh, no gambling and no sports, which I actually took it quite seriously because I thought that if this podcast became just about like my weird interest, then I think that we would lose a lot of the work that Tammy, Andy and I had done over the years to try and you know, have a interesting range of guests around that didn't just talk about the things that mostly occupy my brain, which, you know, to be fair to the Discord person is kind of, you know, the NBA <laughs> gambling to a certain extent, but um, I did want to have a sports episode, but not necessarily about any sort of the intricacies or any of the mundane parts of the actual sports themselves, but to have a larger conversation about sports and politics. And I wanted to have our guest on today, who is Bradford William Davis, somebody I've known for quite a while, somebody whose work I've admired, and somebody who has worked both as a cultural, as a columnist at the New York Daily News, but also as an investigative reporter at Business Insider, where he authored really a groundbreaking and huge news story about how Major League Baseball is using multiple balls in the season and that the balls were different and some of the balls were juiced, some of the balls were not juiced. And that this was something that led to a huge internal investigation within Major League Baseball. So this is somebody who has been, had worn a lot of different hats inside of sports media. I did too, when I was a sports media person as well. And the question I wanted to ask Bradford and the question that we're going to be talking on the show about is whether or not sports and politics, like how are people talking about it today? And is my sense, which, uh, you know, I'll just express now, like my sense is that actually I think that in 2020 we had this moment with the NBA bubble and where the questions around Colin Kaepernick's blackballing had been cresting for a while, where sports became talked about by the media in a way that felt unavoidable, right? Like none of the media people who like never want to talk about politics, they just want to talk about who's going to be the second guy off the bench for the Indiana Pacers or something like that. They're all sort of forced in this moment where they had to talk about politics. And it all culminated in the NBA bubble with the Black Lives Matter t-shirts designed by Nike. And then Colin Kaepernick um, got like a Netflix deal and a Nike commercial and that you had this moment where it seemed like sports was going to always be political, specifically political around black athletes, right? And the question of that were raised by the Black Lives Matter movement. All that is gone now, right? It's been three years. Uh, it seems like sports conversations are explicitly apolitical now. The sports media won't touch any of these issues. They just do the old thing where they're like, well, I don't know, you know, like, we don't have to talk about that. And I find that to be really disappointing because I think that what it has done is that it has given a lot of cover to these leagues to avoid some of these questions. And I don't actually even care what side of the question that you come out on. Um, I have a buddy, Ethan Strauss, who uh, I think Ethan and I disagree about quite a bit politically, but Ethan has his own Substack, his own podca podcast, where he talks about the politics of sports reporting. He talks about sports and politics quite a bit. And, you know, one of the things that I've always respected about Ethan is that he's not afraid to put himself out there and give political opinions. Now, 
The question is, you know, like Ethan is on Substack, he's doing very well and he's very happy on Substack, at least, you know, the last time I talked to him about it. Um, but, you know, the, there is a question of whether Ethan could be that political uh, if he could talk about the things that are actually important contextually around sports if he wasn't on Substack right now. And I think it's something that Bradford also has a lot of perspective on. And it's, uh, I don't know, I think that it's a conversation that people are going to enjoy just because I think that it is not just about sports and it's certainly not about gambling, although I think gambling has a very interesting role right now in the politics of sports. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that is that people are going to enjoy. So here is my conversation with Bradford. Uh, welcome to the show, Bradford. How you doing? Man, I'm good. I'm I'm uh, honored to be a guest of this podcast that I've really enjoyed since its inception. So thank you for having me. I've been excited to do. I've been looking forward to have you on for a while, honestly. And I did a little intro to the show. Generally, I think people do these intros after the interview, but I was just sitting in my basement. I had nothing to do. So I just decided to record <laughs> it beforehand. And one of the things that I talked about in that, it's about three minutes long. So it's not some long monologue, right? I haven't gotten like Colin Cowherd or Jim Rome here where I'm just kind of doing the show by <laughs> doing the show by myself. But uh, one of the things I talked about was that I wanted to run this theory by you. And I already introduced you uh, in the earlier segment, so I think that people will know. But just quickly, you were a sports writer. You were a columnist at the New York Daily News. You were an investigative reporter at Insider. And I think that the work that you did on the multiple baseballs is probably something that many people have heard of and know. But yeah, I did that at the beginning of the show, so we don't have to redo it. But I wanted to run this theory by you or this idea by you. I wanted to react. Get oh, I can't wait. Which is that I think that like that right now that we are in a period in terms of the sports media where there is an overcorrection for what I think a lot of people, especially executives within both the business of sports and the sports media felt like was a overly political moment in terms of 2020 george floyd the nba bubble all the kaepernick that perhaps there was like a real reticence about sports media and sports being so explicitly political even though i think you and i would argue that it wasn't effectively explicitly political but it certainly was like there were slogans and stuff in places right and that right now we're in a period of overcorrection where there is almost no political conversation within the mainstream presses. I, I think that the financial incentives, for whatever reason, really skew towards a couple of things right now. One is being seen as an insider, which comes right. from beating that press release by 14 seconds, as the Shams and Woj types and the Passon and John Heyman types in baseball or Schefter in football or whatever. That gets you seen as an insider, doing that kind of work. and Or... Right. Frankly, gambling. Gambling is, there are these lucrative gambling media partnerships. ESPN just started its gambling service. And I'm seeing a lot of guys who are more like analyst types who really enjoy the X's and O's of sport. Also adapting some of that insight to help you with your betting line. And, um, you know, and that's, if that's where the money's at, then that's where people are going to go. In 2020, there was a, uh, not only were there straight up no games being played for a few months, which is important to remember, 
So wait, so you still got to fill some inches about what's happening in sport. Right. Um, yeah, that is true. You know, there's either true. literally no really games due to the that. pandemic, the uh, justice uprising of both. But uh, 2020 was its was its own thing where, um, you know, there was also a, a deep hunger and appetite to try and reckon with and wrestle with what we were seeing or what are we not seeing on, on, on our screens as those games weren't being played. And that being said, I think that there is a hunger for people who can explain sports correctly or report on it well. I mean, that's why Defectors had such a successful launch as a business that is, you know, appears to be, you know, I get the newsletters where they explain their, their financial status. So it seems like it is a viable business model. So you feel like it's more of like a, a market-driven thing where the money, I agree with, look, the salaries are pretty obvious that the people who can occupy this role where they are mostly on social media become the people who break the news of some transaction, right? This guy is going to wear a different jersey and move, right? And go to play on a different team. It's not like it's some sort of secret knowledge that people are trying to keep hidden or something like that. And that these guys, for the most part, make more money than, you know, somebody who is writing longer investigative pieces or something like that. And it's competitive in that there can't be too many of these guys, right? Like, because somebody's going to tweet it out first and generally that person is going to have a advantage in tweeting it out first next and you know people start to trust them in that sort of way but i feel like that's a very small subset of sports media even though it's the most prominent of it um i guess like my question is just whether you feel like there is also uh you said at the beginning you don't feel like there's like a consortium of people making these decisions but i just i guess i just see less appetite to make these types of big investigations. Well, I mean, frankly, it's expensive to do that kind of work, though. That's a, right. a very important factor. It takes time to knock on the amount of doors, make the amount of phone calls, dot every I and cross every T so that you don't get sued or if you, or if you do get sued, <laughs> it gets thrown out in court. That takes a lot of time. Yeah, so you have the lawyer to deal with the inevitable lawsuit, right? Yeah, even think think of the athletic, right? They, in many ways, were on the forefront of the Trevor Bauer sexual assault reporting. Bauer is a very litigious guy, and he's a multimillionaire, and so he sued the athletic. He so uh, so sued the New York Times Company, which is owned by the athletic, and he sued an individual reporter for just you know tweeting rude but true things (laughs) about him. I am fairly certain that will crush a lot of people's appetites to to go after yeah, that kind of story again, unless they feel would beyond even beyond a, beyond a shadow of doubt the expression beyond ten shadows of a doubt beyond that they have you know that they have a completely ironclad case about whatever's whatever they're they're reporting on and yeah I think that is a, a really big part of it and then the other going back to just what I was saying before about it being market driven I would just want to qualify by saying that is that doesn't mean it's not ideological either. To be like just so hungry for whatever the quickest dollar is an ideology in and of itself and it is reflected in the content that you do or don't pursue. I do find that second part that you talked about to be an interesting theory about it because I wonder if it is the fear of litigiousness, right? Like news organizations are weak now. The public tends to hate us as reporters in a lot of ways. What do we do when Trevor Bauer just basically in the end like does a dunk and feels like he won? That's a good question as far as whether or not how Bauer specifically or the playbook that Bauer operated with, which is basically declaring victory. Because to be clear, he did not win. 
he's not signed to a team, at least currently. Right. He has lost a substantial amount of money as a result of all of the things that, at the very least, Major League Baseball found, <laughs> found sufficient evidence with which to spend him on. And even in a strict win or loss sense in court, he settled. He didn't. He didn't win. He just said it was all it was all nonsense and and all that. But he, but he had to settle with the, I guess the most prominent person who he was in court with, and because he's clearly quite narcissistic, was able to preach to his choir who were happy to cheer him on in that. But that's not the same as winning. As far as the I get how a media institution looks at it, I think it's the headache of having to deal with a uh, a lawsuit. The possibility, of course, that maybe because he is a quality baseball player, that he comes back and he, and whatever person who's who's tasked with covering him on maybe not even a combative way, but on a beat way, on the day to day job of being a beat reporter, has to deal with the headache of him just not talking to you when you need <laughs> to speak to him. Yeah, it feels very different in, across all sports in this moment in terms of that one question of assault, right? That than it did back when the Ray Rice assault case was going on. In the NBA, the supposed progressive haven of all sports, we have two horrific cases involving Miles Bridges who actually couldn't play tonight because he's not allowed in Canada, right? He couldn't travel with the team, right? And and then Kevin Porter Jr., who is not playing, right? But who had, again, just like horrific charges and allegations against him. And it seems like for the most part, like the way in which the press has dealt with both is to just be like, don't want to talk about it. And that there's never a flexion in the same way that there was with Ray Rice in the NFL. And is there is there something about the culture of the league that leads to this? Now, I don't know if those questions are correct or appropriate or I don't even know how I feel on about them. I don't know if the NBA is encouraging this type of thing. However, I will say that when the Ray Rice thing was going on, that question was asked every single day, right? And now it's more like a, we're going to just punt on this thing and hope, you know, let the legal system deal with it or let the legal system decide. And it's not our business as sports people. Like, actually, our business is to try and figure out, well, is Kevin Porter Jr. going to get traded somewhere? And when he does, will he help the team that he goes to win? There's this capitulation to not talk about it, right? Like that, that there wasn't like a conversation about whether we should, that just everyone decided not to. Jay, do you think that the situation might be different enough in a way that led more people to talk about Ray Rice versus Kevin and, and, and Miles Bridges? Miles Bridges is a, is a pretty good player. Kevin Porter had not really made him a name for himself yet in the league. He's pretty good, though. I mean, yeah, yeah. not saying like the NBA player. He's an NBA player, but he's not, you know, but he's not a star or emerging star just yet. And Ray Rice was a superstar. Clearly, he's an elite player. And so I think that there was that on one level, again, the, you know, economy of attention, attention demanded more conversations about him on that level. And then the other thing I think, too, is that there was a, you know, he was caught in 4K, you know, like, as they say, like, right. Um, I think that's the know, big that, difference. It's the video. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the video that kind of forces you to reckon with that in a way that just police described allegations don't in the same way. And that is, un- that is unfortunate and unfair because it should not be that way. But I, I only bring up those comparative differences to say that maybe it wasn't maybe a, uh, 
it wasn't journalism at its finest that we started talking about Ray Rice. It was just we caught him and every, and no one could look away anymore. Ten years ago, and, and because he had the video. Yeah, well, I mean, look, that you know, I have a I have a theory that you and I have talked about quite a bit just on our private life, right? That I just think that basically we have one system of response for things that have been caught on video and we have one system of response for things that are not caught on video and it's basically <laughs> across all things right that um that the human response these days or a large public outcry about anything requires some video if there's no video it's almost you know it's kind of it doesn't matter how bad it is it's not going to generate the same response as something with a video like that just seems very true all right so one thing i want to talk about is that uh Shohei Otani, right, was the big sort of baseball, I don't know, I can't remember a bigger baseball free agent signing, maybe in my life, I don't know, what what, what were the comparably big ones that took place, um, where there was like an... In my opinion, the biggest is A-Rod. Oh yeah, that's uh, right, A-Rod going to the... That's a a pre-Twitter... Uh, situation. That was A-Rod pre-Twitter. Big. Yeah, I yeah. went to the first game that A Rod came back to Safeco, as it was called back then, right? The field in mm-hmm. Seattle, and it was crazy, man. Like there, everybody had for it was like a strip club because everybody had like piles and piles of fake dollar bills. <laughs> you know, oh were, my god, so that must have been like, Do you have pictures of that day? Yeah, and no, I don't because it was also pre. Oh. This was like 2001 or 2000, yeah, maybe yeah, 2000 no, but it was like, I didn't, I don't even think I had a camera on my phone. I'm not even sure I had a cell phone. I don't think I had a cell phone, actually. <laughs> actually, I'm pretty sure I didn't have a cell phone. I'm actually 99% sure I didn't even it's, have it's a cell 2001. phone. 2001. And that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, oh, I definitely did not have a cell phone because I didn't have one when I, until I like left college. I was, uh, I went there and there are all these people there and they're all booing and the booing, I've never heard booing this loud. And A-Rod was upset about it. You know, he made an error in that game and he like looked up at center field and everybody's like cheering and screaming and laughing. And it, you could tell he was hurt by it because of, of course he was hurt by it, you know? But yeah, that was the biggest one. A-Rod was the biggest one. I agree with you. This was close though, I think, right? And it's obviously amplified because social media is always so present in people's Lies, but A-Rod signed the biggest, I guess Otani also signed the biggest contract, but, you know, A-Rod at the time, that was like 10 years, 20, $250 million, right? And that seemed like huge. And now we have like 10 years, 70, $700 million deferred. But the thing I wanted to talk to you about was that um, the way that this thing has been handled in San Francisco media is really interesting. And I wanted to get your take on it, which is that basically Buster Posey, and for the people who don't know this, Buster Posey is sort of one of the, he's like the grand statements of statement of the san francisco giants for the past 20 years or something like that he's a catcher who was quite a good catcher maybe he'll be in the hall of fame one day but you know he sort of is the guy that they are going to always trot out and buster posey was part of the team that was supposed to lure otani to the giants and what (laughs) what buster posey kind of hinted at was that part of the reason why it was hard to bring otani was because there's this of the perception of san francisco as being this like city of homeless drug addicts where crime is out of control and everything like that right posey didn't use that language but that was what he was hinting at and it's definitely been picked up like the san francisco chronicle has all these columns now about how you know is what posey's is was otani right to lead to not come to the giants now the truth of it of course is that otani was never coming to the giants anyway it doesn't matter like that wasn't why he stopped but I do wonder if he maybe brought it up to Buster Posey. I don't want to like call Buster Posey a liar. I don't think Buster Posey would say that 
if like it wasn't on his mind like he wouldn't just make it up but yeah what'd you think about this storyline because uh, you know you sent it to me and we had we talked about it a little yeah bit. i haven't read the chronicles coverage of that side of it but i find that pretty funny that chronicle is wrestling right. with this because i know the leopards would eat my face <laughs> yeah, right. a uh, media that, that sometimes uncritically uh, parodied the worst generalizations of crime with sans context in San Francisco and other cities, but San Francisco probably gets it the worst since like Chicago. Since San Francisco is overtaking right. Chicago, I think, <laughs> as far as uh, you yeah. know, the wet dream for people who hate you know who uh, hate cities. Anyway, but. I, it's funny, I reached out to players about this, because I was just like, players who um, have or were recently in the Giants organization, are or were recently in the Giants org, and one guy was like, I, I really don't think so, because there are plenty of, you know, places that you're, you, with the money that you make as a baseball player, can, can live in, and, uh, you know, it's, and you kind of felt that was overblown. Another was like, oh, Absolutely. All of us are watching Fox News constantly. This person does not have the same politics as many of his teammates. He's all watching these right wing leads are always, always watching Fox News, and they're all like saying this, this, that, and the third about their fear of uh, getting mugged at knife point or something like that on their way to the ballpark or something. And so I, uh, I kind of my impression was honestly kind of that I'm not sure if it was Otani's. Fear, though I think it'd be kind of hilarious that if it broke, if San Francisco's um, reputation broke like the cultural boundaries of a Japanese man who lives many hundreds of miles away <laughs> from the city, anyway. I think the biggest issue is, frankly, as a left-handed hitter, um, San Francisco is a, is, an, is a stadium that is not especially conducive to home runs. He also happens to live currently in, or, or I, I presume, live in Southern California because he put he was played for the anaheim angels for a long time and so moving to the dodgers is not a significant change in your lifestyle you may not even have to move for all we know depending on where his house is yeah. so if he likes where he is he just wants a better team and the dodgers are the considered the maybe the preeminent organization in baseball at this point but i do i i would not surprise me if there if even if it's not necessarily affecting free agency if there is a reputation among players that Maybe in a tiebreaker situation, would lead them to to put SF on their oh, no trade clause. A little more creative, but all, but the baseball players. Player like, who I trust tell me that is like yeah. the, is enough to make me think you know that there at least is some truth to, at least some truth to the perception of SF as like a place that you don't want to. I don't know, be out late at night or raise a family or something like that. Yeah, I will well, say. I'll, I'll just be honest. I would not want to be near the ballpark down in the Giants by myself late at night either. But that's also true of a lot of ballparks in America. Yeah, that's not exclusive Anything to that's in SF, the middle but of the city again, is not exclusive it's, it's, it's to San not... Francisco. But yeah, and exactly. no, Shohei Otani would not be living. He would not be living in the Tenderloin. It would be yeah, really yeah, interesting like if it's... he was. But he would be like taking some sort of like weird transportation in the whatever tunnel system they have for people who get to skip all the traffic or something like that down to that area. Or maybe he would hop on yeah. Clay Thompson's boat because the, that's the thing. Most, mo- most, most athletes who are on multi-million dollar contracts, I, I doubt they actually even live in city limits. Most of the time players have very specific 
ideas of where they want to live. And it's like either the, um, the, the, gla- the glassiest exclusive high rise possible where you have as little interaction <laughs> with, with the world as you can while, while being in a city and being close enough to a club or you live in whatever this, the suburbs are, whether for New York, it's Westchester and Long Island or whatever, Jersey. And I'm sure it's like Atherton or something <laughs> where, you know, where you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when I was, when I was in grad school, I had no money. And so I took the, my friend found this weird job. I don't remember. I don't remember how he got it, but the job was basically that G I don't think it was GQ. I think it was Esquire had a apartment at the top of the Trump tower where they threw parties. And this is the one on, I think on the East side on 46th street or whatever it is. And, um, maybe not 46th street, wherever the Trump tower is. Right. And I, our job was to clean all the shit out of this apartment. And it was on, it was the penthouse apartment of it. And it took us uh, two days and our payment, we didn't actually get paid. We just got to keep whatever we wanted out of the apartment, which was like a lot of like weird stuff. And then a whole bunch of liquor. Right. I think I, I think I got basically three giant duffel bags full of liquor from that. And, um, the funniest part about that was like I was struggling with these giant bags of liquor and I got to the bottom and in the little car circle was Derek Jeter <laughs> taking that suey. I guess they both live in that building. <laughs> they both lived in the Trump Tower. This is like basically 2002, I think, or 2003. So it was like legitimately 20 years ago. But um, but yeah, no, they... That is the type of building that baseball players or members of the Yankees live in, right? Like they live in like a place like that place. They're not living in a place that is going to be dealing with that type of stuff. But yeah, I don't know now. Okay, I'm going to take what uh, Buster Posey took a lot more seriously then because I don't know. I guess it is true if it was a tiebreaker, maybe you didn't want to live in San Francisco. Like I would, if you told me that Shohei Otani in terms of 100% distribution, 3% of his thinking was influenced by this, I'd be like, eh, it seems a little high. But if you told me it was 1%, <laughs> I'd be like, yes, absolutely. You know, I think that money, team, but, fit, all that sort of stuff, like, I think that makes a lot more sense. But uh, it's hilarious that it is a factor at, or considered a factor at all. And it just makes you want to, like, shout skill issue at the Giants for <laughs> any time they, they throw in another mediocre season. And then blame it on yeah, anything yeah. but not finding the right players, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I paying know, them I more know. money than the, uh, you know, than the players than the place they they sign with. And so that's my that that is, is my take on that. But I do th- I do think it, it could be a factor in some situations, or, or at the very least, the perception of the the boogeyman perception of San Francisco is a thing. In fact, I'll even give one concrete example that was public at one point, but. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, who was a very good player in the Mets a few years ago, flaming yeah, out right yeah. now in his career. But uh, he posted a picture on a road trip to his Instagram of a homeless person, uh, you know, who was like didn't have his had his pants down to his ankles. He said, "Okay, great win, fellas, but let's get the hell out of here." Caption was incredibly insensitive; it was really messed up. But that's the only time I've ever seen. Or I should say the only time. It's the last time I remember someone mocking the people of the city that hard, it was like John Rocker, like 20 years ago. So yeah, this yeah, yeah. stand out to me. This is 2019. No, 30 so this, years ago. You know, this is pre-COVID. 
What city so, uh, was it? Was it San Francisco, where they play the Giants? San Francisco, yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, well, I want to talk about something else. In ter- I, don't, I'm, I, I don't know why this is such a Bay Area-centric thing, but this is something I wanted to talk about a little bit, which is that uh, there's another thing that happened in sports, which is that Draymond Green had a string of incidents, starting with stomping on DeMont. Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter where you start it, but let's say we start with like punching his teammate Jordan Poole at the beginning of last season and then stop. I start with punching LeBron in the penis during the finals. Yeah, okay. We could start there. (laughs) That's my first. 2016. (laughs) But that basically right now, the league and the Warriors find, I don't know what role the Warriors have, but like basically the league was like, okay, enough, right? And they indefinitely suspend him after he punches Yusuf Nurkic or winds up and does like a gigantic spin slap, whatever you want to call it. And that uh, this was like just weeks after he tried to choke out another player and that people... The part that I was interested in, something that I found compelling was that like this thing is really getting framed in a context of mental health, uh, that there is Ramona Shelburne, who uh, is somebody that I respect, who used to actually sit next to me when I worked at Grantland and, and was always like a kind and very generous type person. Like Ramona wrote a piece about how Draymond basically blacks out when these things happen. And it was hinting towards that this is a mental health issue, right? The league itself indefinitely suspends him under the premise that, you know, and the Athletic reported this recently, that he's going to need to go to counseling for at least three weeks, right? And we saw that the league did this too with John Morant, where they're like, you have to go to counseling. John Morant, I think, went to two days of counseling and basically like, I'm good. And that was part of the reason why I think they handed down such a heavy suspension because he had like, quote, made a mockery of their counseling thing. And just like, well, look, if you were worried that he made a mockery of the counseling thing, then why did you let him come back? This is on you, right? What, what do you think about all this? What do you think about this mental health framing around this? I, I, I have an opinion, but I want to hear you first. Ah, uh, Jay. I expect just let it fly. It's a podcast. So when, I, I, I expect this to win on a similar wavelength of this. But I, I want to start by saying that there is... That is, I don't think, I, I think it's like never not mental health when you discuss any sort of dysfunctional behavior. What's interesting is that mental health is being introduced so aggressively now at this point in just how we discuss dysfunctional behavior. And part of that's due to, I think, people like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love talking about depression and stuff and, and just being open about their own struggles with these things. And and just even just the, the broader acceptance an understanding of mental health being like not something that to be uh, stigmatized when seeking counseling and therapy right. people. It's just more part of like our American cultural ethos to if you have the means and ability to, to go to therapy. Like it's almost a meme at this point. Men will do, will slap uh, Nurk. A gigantic Serbian center instead of going to therapy. You know, men will punch a giant New Zealand New Zealander in the dick instead of going to therapy. Right. You know, so punch a teammate. But I think I think at the same time as therapy has been destigmatized, there is a risk of using therapy as a cudgel or shield for a lack of accountability at the behavior that we see up front. And I wonder if that is possibly happening to a degree in that we're going, relying more on the trope 
of oh this is just an issue he needs to struggle with he's struggling with he needs to get get over versus more comprehensive and deep thinking as to why Draymond does what he does that is yeah, my I sense mean, I that, said, like, we're leaning into cliche almost, okay not... it feels like they're providing cover at this point right now in some ways they're not because he's being suspended a long ass time he's gonna miss half of the season Fair. i think yeah and the idea he's gonna miss less than 10 games is crazy i think people who say that are being like crazy he's gone for a while right and he's gonna have to really show some contrition and he's gonna have to go on a whole tour and tell people what he learned and it's gonna be ridiculous right but I think that basically what has happened is that I do agree with you that I think that it is good that players like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan talked about anxiety and depression. I think it is very important that professional athletes specifically talk about these things because they're seen as being so macho and so uh, iconic within the way in which America thinks about masculinity and all these things that when they talk about it, it actually does matter more than if somebody, an actor or something like that talks about it, right? Like I think that's undeniable. And, um, but I don't think that has anything to do with this. I don't think that there is any linkage at all, except for the words mental health. I think that what this is, is that basically the league has to come up with a narrative as to why they're not just suspending the guy, right? Why they're not just saying we've had enough of your shit and that the league wants in some ways to seem like it's being proactive about this thing and the way in which they're going to decide to be proactive is not to just, not to just to do what they did to like Ron Artest and Steven Jackson and be like, hey, you dudes aren't playing all year. You know, you're done and your reputations will never be the same, right? What they're doing is they're like being like, oh, we're the friendly league. We're going to suspend him, but we're going to mandate that he gets help, right? Now, the thing that I have not heard in terms of any of these assessments of mental health or whatever is what actual what is actually wrong with Draymond Green, right? Right. Um, like, what it's like, what, why do we, why does he help need for? help? <laughs> what, what does he need help doing? It, it just feels again, it's like using yeah. a well-worn and cliche that no one can really criticize rather than a, a robust assessment as to why he's behaving in this way. Because again, it's not, it's never not mental yeah, health like this yeah. at the top of the subject. It's just that yeah, we yeah. don't, you, member of the media, and you slash you, Adam Silver, frankly, don't know why, you know, or, you know, um, someone like does a lot of flagrant twos. Like, that's not, I, I just don't. I know. I don't like where that discourse is going. Again, if it's just used as a lazy way of uh, not actually analyzing the reason for a behavior pattern. Yeah, look, now, look, if we're going to do this thing where we talk about, hey, this guy was always a tough guy enforcer of this team and things started to go off the rails a little bit. They weren't as good as they were. And this was how we responded. Right. That would be one thing. But I'm sorry. It's there's such a rap sheet at this not actual rap sheet, but this is not an isolated uh, incident. As you said, this is not all new. Right. And. My sense of this is that I want this just to be cleaner, right? I just want it to be like, listen, man, you can't choke a guy out and then three day, three weeks later do a spin fucking like Street Fighter 2 punch to this other guy, <laughs> you know, after you punched your teammate last year and basically faced zero repercussions for punching your teammate. Like you still like got to play because they wanted you to take... Uh, they wanted you to like be involved in quote ring night, right? They're like, oh, his ring night is so important. We can't take that. Yes, away. I heard that today. That's fine. These are all this. 
these are all decisions that you as an organization and you as the NBA made together, right? These are the decisions that you made. And then it spun out of control, right? And he, one of the players felt like he would endlessly get away with it. And frankly, who can blame him for th thinking that he would endlessly get away with it, right? And then when it comes out that, hey, like, you know, everybody's sick of this guy's shit, which is why I think that everybody kind of like why this is coming down, because everyone's just like, Jesus, man, I don't. Can you just stop? Yeah. That's it, it, when they, you said it was a mental health thing. Oh, it wasn't man, a mental health. Draymond's going to do something. That's not <laughs> what it, that is dishonest. Yeah. That's not what it is. No one's like, like oh, right, man. Right, right, he, It he, is he, not that. He slapped the Bosnian bear in the face. <laughs> he is in, that's Nurkic's nickname. <laughs> he, he yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. clearly he's going through something and we need to assess that. It's, that does, that feels like a very insincere reason. It's more, it's far more likely that it has something yeah. to do with Draymond mocking the reputation of the league. And it's, at this point, insufficient sorts of discipline towards his behavior, knowing that basically him assessing that there is a reasonable trade-off of missing occasional games or miss or, or just being thrown out of the, the game he's in for the sake of either rallying his his teammates and, and being like like you said, being that enforcer that intimidates his, you know, his opponents right. and helping them win ball games. I think that and I think that Draymond being a very intelligent person, I think it's clear that he's a very big who comes to basketball very smart, which is what has made him oh, uh, yeah. despite well, he's being one of like the an, smartest uh, a, basketball players. Yeah, he's one of the smartest basketball players to ever play, I think. Like he's a genius. Yeah, absolutely absolutely. It's what he's been able to do despite declining athleticism. That's why he's still right. an elite defensive player. It's because he just like right. he reads plays within half a second of, of the right. uh, up and bring the ball to the court. That's what makes him so good and so effective. So I think that he's just being rational Draymond and just deciding and being able to, to make those to make those calculations and decide, okay, it is worth it to get away try and get away with some hard contact for the sake of helping my team win. I believe that it would be the, you know, give a tr true serum to Adam Silver or whatever. That's for Steve Kerr for that matter. That That is the real reason why they knew they had to bench him indefinitely. And uh, and therapy yeah. becomes a palatable, uh, you know, uh, friendly face, good cop, like what the NBA is doing its own good cop, bad cop. That's why Draymond Green can't play right now. <laughs> um, yeah, and, I don't, yeah. and, I don't, and I don't like that because therapy is, because... I'm certain therapy could benefit him, but that's not as it could benefit anyone. But that's, you know, I just don't want to, I just want us to keep it a buck about why something's happening. Yeah, that's how I feel. It's just, look, I don't know if this thing delegitimizes or it makes a mockery of real problems, right? People always say that when they need a reason to be mad at something. I'm just going to straight out say, no, do I think that like Draymond doing this makes a mockery of other mental health concerns in sports maybe but not, i don't think it's that big of a deal like i think sports take mental health more seriously now in a good way and i think that's all positive and i don't think that this will derail all that i just don't like when people lie to me you know and i just find it very annoying <laughs> and that's where i'm annoyed yeah about it's, it's condescending like, Come on. it wasn't a mental health <laughs> yeah it wasn't a mental health thing the last time 10 times that he did this shit you know it's just a mental health thing now Oh, you woke up and you realize that this guy is out of control. You just realize that you're like, okay, Draymond, if it's one more thing after this Rudy Gobert choke thing, we're going to decide that it's a mental health problem. We're going to make you get like, what is this, right? This is a long period of behavior. And now it's somehow completely taken out of the context of him as a basketball player and all the other stuff. And it's just like, 
Draymond needs help, and it's, I don't know if he does need help, right? I don't think that he's going to take any of this stuff seriously. I think he will do it exactly what he needs to do to get back on the court as quickly as possible. This is who he is. This is his brand. This is how he became one of, a Hall of Famer, one of the great players of all time, by having this edge. And, like, it happens to all these players who have this edge specifically is that at some point it becomes farce because they're not good anymore. It happened to Kevin Garnett all the time. Remember when Kevin Garnett was like yelling like the most horrible shit at like Charlie Villanueva? Listen, like I Charlie remember with Carmelo Anthony, like, yeah, your wife tastes like honey Cheerios. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. I was just saying, when just uh, stubborn, he, just... he yelled at Carmelo Anthony, your wife tastes like honey Cheerios. <laughs> that was like late stage KG. 2012, 2013, something like that. It was crazy. And it was like, KG said a lot of wild shit to a lot of people. I love Kevin Garnett. I think that the iteration that he and Paul Pierce are doing now where they're doing their own podcast was just them sort of chopping it up. I love it. I watch every single clip and I love the passion that Kevin Garnett has for basketball. But he entered this phase, right, where it was just like, all right, man, you're not that good anymore. And now the players are like being like, what'd you say to me? Whereas before they wouldn't have, you know, like they wouldn't have said that to you. And for Draymond, it's physical in a way. And then that's going to always be worse. Right. And so like the idea that it's mental health is just like, yeah, I guess it's mental health. I think I agree with your general assertion that it's all mental health. Right. Like in a way, but I find that the framing of this, I just find it really offensive, I think. But only really because, like I said, it's because I feel like people are lying to me, you know, and then I'm just offended that they're lying to me more than anything. And I'm already preemptively mad for, for the apology tour you, you projected, where, where Draymond, now equipped with, with, with the language of therapy, is able to oh explain the, how oh, the pathology yeah. that he's conquered. <laughs> Rather than simply using the rules oh ahead in front of him. God. I can't <laughs> wait for Draymond to be like, that won in a lot of games. I'm trying to be more mindful about my anger and find the source of it. When I, my, I'm <laughs> yeah. no longer, I'm just going to speak my truth from here on out. I'm not, I'm not going to have my, I'm not going to have my hands speak my truth for me. Sucker punching. <laughs> use of like it's going to be all of that. And then he's going to do some sit down with some, some ex NBA player, right? And it's going to be broadcast on some on Turner or whatever, right? And it's going to be like he's going to talk about all the things that he's learned and all the thoughts. He's going to seem really contrite because he is a very smart and effective communicator, right? I mean, there's a reason why this guy is going to be the guy who replaces Charles Barkley once Charles Barkley finally retires on Turner as being the big voice, right? He's going to get paid like he's the big voice. And his issue right now is that like all of that is kind of at risk in a little way, right? But I don't think it's at risk in this real way. Like I just think that he's going to have to do the most bullshit apology tour of, of all time and then come back to a team that's like eight games under 500 and is just so depressing and they're just going to play out the rest of the season. And I don't know. I just feel bad in some way. I feel mostly bad for Steph Curry, like most people. But I also just, I feel also bad for myself because we're going to just be lied to, and to you, nah, you know, I, just because we're going to be lied to you I don't feel so bad much. for Steph at all. Because listen, <laughs> Steph has, Steph is obviously one of the greatest players we've ever seen. But, right. but uh, Steph has relied on Dre to be his anger translator for the last decade. 
and he's gotten a lot of success. Oh, so that's you. Okay, so this is a spicy take then. So you're basically (laughs) being like, Dre is not Dre unless he has to basically be his anger translator and Steph's anger translator, right? That like he like... Yeah, no, yeah. uh, That's what Enforcer does. He's a puppet. In word word and deed. Like he gets to be be the guy and he loves it. And Steph continues to be like, you know, um, to... uh, do his non-offensive shimmies and and give the glory right. to God. It was great. It's a great <laughs> setup. It's a great marriage. Yeah, that so is. Yeah. I, I feel I, I feel no. I feel no. I don't feel bad. You know, you win four titles. I don't feel bad for you anymore. Like nine times out of ten, especially when again when it's so nakedly transparent what's happening in front of me as, as we are both just you know <laughs> complained about for the last ten minutes. All right, here's the last thing I want to ask you about. Right, which is that I wanted to have you on because I feel like you are a type of sports reporter that is rare and increasingly rare. It's something we touched on at the beginning. But I think that for many reasons that we outlined at the beginning, that the type of deep investigative work that you do is not as common as it was, let's say, even 10 years ago, certainly not 30 years ago, 20 years ago, right? It's it's a thing that less people do. The f- first question I wanted to ask about it is like, well, how do you feel about like a, like, what do you, th- do you think that, that, that there is an audience for investigative sports work. Like, do you feel like there is a need for investigative sports work? Um, my opinion is obviously, I think there's both. Yes. But I wanted to know what you thought about it. Well, so any editors who are listening, there is a clear high demand for investigative sports writing. Now, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird question. Cause I'm talking about like, do I, is my existence justified? <laughs> I, I would like to think yes. Um, oh, but that's, I think it's an okay question to ask, right? Like if you ask me that question about some of the work I've done in different iterations, is this necessary? I think a lot of times I would have said no, but, um, but yeah, I, I was just wondering like, because you're like one of the only ones left, like you're the one of the only ones doing it right now. So like, that's why I wanted to ask, right? Well, how, how do you feel about it? The way I see it is that because it is so rare, it makes it more important, if that makes sense. These are still, when you then think about the major men's pro leagues, they're still multi-billion dollar institutions. And where there is that amount of money flowing, there are things, there are questions that, that ought to be asked about about what they effectively do with that. And similarly with the, you know, smaller, lower revenue sort of sporting ecosystems, whether that's high school sports or, or the Olympic sports, that are not revenue earners, those are oftentimes little fiefdoms, cults, where, you know, all sorts of abuse and stuff is rampant in there. And if there's no one to, like, really be there to ask that question, then that means that people get hurt. Whether it is you, the consumer, being scammed, or athletes as laborers, or the woman or men, whoever that they're dating, (laughs) I get a sense of purpose out of being trying to understand what's happening and, and to be able to tell a robust and comprehensive story about something that you may not have considered or may not have known about or didn't know about, but just wanted to have the kind of airtight retelling of this open secret in whatever sport that we enjoy, we enjoy and interested in. I think that is an exciting opportunity for journalistic institutions, especially those who are not financially beholden to sports, who are independent, independent whether that be... Right. Newspapers to, you know, but even it's organizations and publications that are not thought of as sports pubs to be able to just 
treat this the way you treat Amazon and have people to just kind of like to, to dig and, and who right. understand the ecosystem and understand the environment and the key players to go after things as, as they see them. I, I think that's that it's a really wide open opportunity to do unique, distinctive journalism that could make a difference in something that everyone cares about, which is sports. Yeah, I think the question going forward is whether or not that type of work will live inside of a sports section or not, right? You have, uh, for example, I don't think that the public appetite is not there. Like, for you had this ridiculous thing that happened in D.C. where Glenn Youngkin, who is the governor of Virginia, came out and did a press conference with the owner of the Wizards and basically said, we're moving to Alexandria, Virginia, right? And everyone's like, what? And D.C. is like, what? Right. And then Muriel Bowser and D.C. come up with a counter proposal. But all of this is like public funding. The D.C. proposal was half a billion dollars of public funding to give to this billionaire sports owner, right, to try and make it so that he doesn't abandon downtown D.C. Like, I don't know. And I have a lot of friends who live down there, or at least people that I've talked to. And then there's also this fantasy basketball league that I'm in where there's some of the people live in D.C. And their interest in this issue is very real, right? And what they want to know is what the fuck is happening, right? And that that is an investigative, like, beat reporter type of thing that needs to happen. Because let me tell you something. Like, I respect a lot of the NBA reporters, and, like, a lot of them are my friends or people that I came up with. But, like, they're, they're going to, like, they don't see that type of story, like, actually figuring out what the fuck is happening. Like, that's not really their beat anymore, right? Like, it's not the thing that they cover. Like, they talk about the games, they talk about the player movement, they play, talk about different things like that, or how to evaluate players like within a fantasy sense, or they talk about gambling. And I just think that like, basically that type of stuff is going to be non-sports section stuff. Like for example, all the John Morant stuff came through the Washington Post. It didn't come through like Memphis Grizzlies beat reporters, right? It was like a newspaper. It came, it came to WAPO's sports investigating that, desk. Right? Right, 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 right. Sports investigator reporter, designated person for that, you know. And the Washington Post has a great sports section. Like they actually, because they actually do care about that kind of stuff, you know. Um, When I got to the New York Daily News, um, you know, they had an award-winning I team a few years that was completely deprecated (laughs) by the time I was there, and that was just not. Yeah, yeah, my friend Vinton used to work on that. Yeah, like my friend, I had a buddy from college who worked on that team. And it was like for many years, all he did, he like went to court about steroid stuff, you know, <laughs> um, baseball steroid stuff. And I, um, like it was his main beat. And it was a kind of cool idea that somebody's job would be just to basically look at steroid scandals in sports. Right. Like and he did it for years and years and years. He was on that team. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's like it's, like is the is the post the only place with that type of thing right now? Does the LA Times have a sports investigative team? Do you know? Does the Chronicle? I, don't think I the mean, Chronicle they, does, they, right? they have a. I think the Times does have a sports investigative reporter and well, some they don't have a guys, sports you know? desk. Right, 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 right. I mean, Kevin Draper, who's like, you know, somebody that I know, like that is sort of his job. Oh, talking about they the don't LA Times. A, oh, the LA Times. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, LA, LA Times has, right. yeah, has some enterprise investigative type folks there. Um, oh. I don't, I can't, I couldn't tell you the workings of the structure of that sports desk, but, but yeah, that is right. at least something. But yeah, I think it was the New York Times and the Washington Post were the two places that I know for sure had dedicated, like, uh, team within a team to suss out these bigger, bigger picture things. And so now, and now maybe it's just the Post, which is a shame because I mean, uh, 
there is again there is opportunity and people do care about this stuff and people do read it when you drop it it is fueling all of our sports doc obsession getting all these nitty-gritty details that we've oh, never, never seen before absolutely yeah you know so yeah. um you know I, I just think it's again it's good again full circle co- to our conversation but it's just it's chasing the long-term investment of building deep and committed readers versus the quick buck that exists with whatever and- business partnership so depressing i'm depressing myself into you know marketing jobs but but that's, that's at least how i see it but i i, I hope that and I, I really don't want to be like the sort of journalism i don't want to, to place a unearned sense of heroism to journalism uh if that makes sense but i, but I do think that it is a genuinely vital organ within the sports media world to be able to like have people who have an interest and capacity and and uh you know, sensitivity for, you know, just going a little bit deeper, you know, uh, whether yeah. in the midst of the day-to-day job or on a dedicated investigative team. And that's actually, I, I, one of the things I was able to do uh, this summer was I, I led a, a, I moderated a panel discussion on investigative reporting in sports uh, at the National Association of Black Journalists Conference. And one of the things that I was encouraging by the, people who were there who were a few years younger than me and, you know, maybe first getting into or, or trying to get into sports media, the idea that even if you don't want to be a capital I investigator reporter, you can use tools, the, the tools of investigative reporting in order to just have the best beat ever that catches who got traded, but also lots of other questions that maybe have you distinct from your competing news source right. in your town or city. Yeah, apologies for the field of dream school, but you, if you build it, they'll come. That's how I see it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I don't do the. I I'm glad you said the thing about like let's not drape ourselves in like the robes of the hero heroism yeah. of journalism. Yeah, no, no spotlight. I'm not like, like... <laughs> my thing here is just basically like when I think about the NBA, for example, and I think about the amount of information that comes out about things that are important, whether domestic violence cases against players or whether this whole thing with Ime Yuduka, where we have no idea why he was fired still for the Boston Celtics, or even something like Andrew Wiggins, who is a player for the Golden State Warriors who took like 30 games off last year, came back, and now he can't play basketball anymore. He sucks, you know? And it's just like... Basically, a lot of the reporters who cover the Warriors said, we know why he wasn't playing, but we're not going to tell you the public. Just, what the fuck is your job? You know, like it's your job to tell the public. I'm sorry. He's a public figure right now. You can write that story sympathetically, right? You can write that story and withhold certain details that you think are not anyone's business. But you have to tell us why he's not playing, right? Like you actually have to do that work. And. I just find it so bizarre that basically everybody, not everybody, but that the vast majority of people within the NBA circuit have decided to just stop reporting about anything except transactions. And I think that is true. I think it's really weird how much they all got in line to support the in-season tournament, right? And saying, oh, these floors are awesome. Here's what they're doing. Like, you know, and that they're basically become cheerleaders for the league. And I'm sorry. I think that they're like that the NBA media is largely captured, not everybody. Right. But I think a larger of it has been basically captured by the league. And now it is just like a it's like almost like a PR machine for the league itself. Right. And that I think that's weird. I think everybody knows it that pays attention to it. And I also think that basically what it means is that there is a huge 
audience of people who watch the NBA, who follow it, who like to think critically about it, who want to think about these types of things, who want to ask questions about why are the Wizards moving again? You know, like questions like this. And I do think that there's an appetite amongst those people for these types of stories. They just have to be produced, right? Um, if you broke a story, if anyone broke a story about what, why Ime Yudoka was fired from the Boston Celtics, and now we apparently just have to accept that we just have to talk about him now that he's on the Houston Rockets as if nothing ever happened, right? Like, that's that weird. That is one it's of the really fucking things weird. happening right now. The amount yeah. of praise that Ime Yudoka is getting right now after the way he had to leave his last job. And I, right. I, I, can ima- I can concede, of course, that he's probably coaching his butt off as far as the X's and O's, but is he like a safe person to be around if you were a woman we working don't know. for the Rockets? We have no we idea because we, we don't know what don't happens, so. right? It's so weird because it was not that long ago where we had Matt Barnes being on TV like, yo, I'm sorry for downplaying this. I heard what it right. I can't really say it, but he need to go <laughs> was yeah, yeah. what he had said. And yet, and so he took a year off. We have no sense of what he has done. Uh, speaking of like therapy, question mark, <laughs> um, in order to become right, the kind of person right. who should be employed again, not because of his on coach on court coaching ability, because that wasn't in question. He was clearly great at it, which is why he got he finally got the Celtics over the hump. But but are you a safe employee around a woman in your workspace? The answer appears to be no. But we you know, but I would I don't want to go to Reddit for that. I want to go to a credential journalist who's dotting every I and crossing every T and making sure that yeah. they have sufficiently corroborated all the information they need to do the reporting. Even I'm even stumbling into kind of another apology for why, you know, investigative reporting matters because look at red rolls up with this stuff. People want to think about, about what's happening behind the scenes. I know, but, you know, we just, know. you just need good, good credentialed writers to, to translate the things that we these questions, open questions that we have about what's, you know, but what's happening inside locker rooms and, and courthouses and shady financial dealings with the city of Alexandria. Yeah, no, it's, it's so weird. I don't, I don't. Okay. Let's say, let's say that what Ime Odoka did wasn't really that bad. You know, maybe he slept with someone's wife who was high up and it wasn't like a chronic thing. And he just did it. Like, I have no clue. I'm just speculating because we don't like we have to basically either give him the benefit or the doubt or not based on zero information because the NBA press corps that covers that team, many of whom know what actually happened, have decided that the public doesn't deserve to know, you know, and that to me is extremely weird because I'm like, oh, well, then who's your boss, you know? Is your boss the public? Are you serving the public? Are you serving this team and giving the public basically what they need to know based on your assessment of it? That's not your fucking job to make that decision, right? Your job is to report facts on that you have obtained on public figures and multi-billion dollar, gigantically famous, world famous organizations that you're reporting on. And when you decide to not do that for whatever arbitrary reason, like you've been captured. That's, that's long and short of it. There's no like gray zone it's very very clear and it's very very clear to every single person who is watching this from afar there's nobody who th- who would look who you would describe that decision that situation to and be like oh yeah he's not just doing pr for the team right the wiggins thing where it's just like oh we know but we don't think that we think it's his own business and that the public doesn't need to know his business i'm like that's not your decision to make when you're a journalist right like you actually have to report the things that you figure out and when you don't 
and people start speculating and calling you out on it, I'm sorry, like your response can't be like, oh, but I know you're getting my man, like whoever your these reporters are, like you are not getting paid enough to be doing PR for the league. You know, none of you are right. Like you're not part of the NBA. You're not getting a paycheck as a player. Like, why do you feel the need to cover for the league and for these players so much? I will never understand it. Well, not to, not to ask a, a leading question on, on this, but do you think that the Wigan situation and the Udoga situation are kind of like two two leaves in the same branch here as far as covering for the uh, subject in mind? Or, or is it, you know, or do you think that there may, or, or are there any distinct differences, as, at, least, at least as you understand it? You know, I, I don't know because I don't know. Stuff, you know. Yeah, I, there might they, it may it may very well be, but we don't know because they won't tell us what happened. Like they just won't. And so, how would we know? And all I know is that, like in other eras, that all this stuff would have been reported out, you know, and it would have been up to the journalists to figure out how sympathetically they were going to report it, right? And there are ways to obviously be very sympathetic, and but you have a. I'm sorry, you have a responsibility to report this shit. I don't think it's hard to say. And what you don't have responsibility to is to protect the reputation of the teams that you're covering. You have zero responsibility to do that. And in fact, if that is part of your calculus, right, um, mm-hmm. then you shouldn't be a reporter. You should be a PR person. Pretty simple, right? I don't think this is difficult. And I don't. I think that people in the media and people who are in the league have basically obfuscated in this way where it seems like it's reasonable, right? But it's not reasonable. It's not. It's like crazy that that happened. It's crazy that we don't know what Ime Yudoka did yet. It's crazy. And it's like something that I don't accept. I don't accept this crazy lying stuff. Anyway. Okay. And if it was bad enough that you had to get fired for it, then we should, and and people know, then we should, they should be reported. They should just I tell think us that's fair. was. Yeah, just tell us what. He's not even in Boston anymore. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are willing to trash every athlete that leaves Boston, you know? Every athlete that leaves the Boston Red Sox, you guys are be like, oh, yeah, he had a drinking problem, and also, like, his wife hates him, and also he was cheating with seven people. And you're like, are you sure? You yeah. know, why are you t- It's <laughs> like the it's first like... time we actually need you to take a black man down. <laughs> <as he's leaving>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you won't do it. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Yeah. Listen, I think what that means, man, is that racism is solved. You know, we don't have, yeah, we, <laughs> we don't have racism. Thank you, President Obama. We, we are truly pro-spatial now. We're pro-spatial <laughs> because Ina Yudoka did not get trashed upon leaving Boston. <laughs> like, every, like every other black person associated with sports who has ever left the city of Boston got trashed. Yes, did, did, this did was King's dream. Did Mookie Betts get? Did Mookie Betts get trashed? Was he really the first? Oh, he did. He did. Yeah, he did. Right? Because they were basically saying, "Oh, well, you know, he was being difficult about these negotiations." And the, the whole thing was like, was that like, he he want he wouldn't sign the contract uh, extension? Oh yeah, he wouldn't sign it anyway, which is flatly false based on everything I've heard, at least secondhand. Was that like, yeah, yeah he would he would have hap- if he, if you had paid him market value, he would have happily stayed in Boston. They just I will say uh, this about the Red Sox fans. Do it. The Red Sox fan seems to have not bought that trashing of Mookie Betts on the way out. Like, they're still yes, so mad yes. about this. <laughs> Actual growth here. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, at that point, it was, it was so unassailable because he didn't do anything wrong. He never, he never, you know, he never spoke out of turn. He um, just played extremely well and won yeah, he was the lot of so games. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then he didn't request a trade. They just chose the trade. <laughs> yeah. There was no angle you could take that, uh, you know, 
You just you just have to like be ideologically committed to racism to to uh, <laughs> decide that Mookie Betts was a was a bad actor in, the, in any of this. <sighs> that would have been really funny. They're like, can you imagine like a meeting where like, okay, guys, all the stuff we usually do to trash the players out, it's not really working. Also, he's really good, and it seems like a lot of the people play it like him. Let's just say that he wasn't going to sign anyway, and just hope the whole racism thing works for us. <laughs> yeah, we'll just play the hits. <laughs> yeah, this recalcitrant young man was not going to sign with the Boston Red Sox anyway. Yeah. He thinks you're all racist. He wants to go with the big city flash and glitz of LA showtime, and you're just like, no, that didn't work, actually. <laughs> Everyone's really pissed at you guys still. <laughs> I guess that's progress. I remember there was a podcast that Bomani did with Dominique Foxworth, and Bomani had this really funny bit about how if if somebody wants to ever argue that racism is over, then they should talk about how Jameis Winston still has a job because Jameis Winston, all he does is throw interceptions, and yet he somehow is still the quarter. This is when Jameis Winston was a starting quarter. And he's like beloved. Yeah, yeah, I knew. Yeah, if you want to talk about a guy with a weird past that nobody talks about anymore, but um, but like he was like, James Winston, if you want to point out, if you want to argue that racism doesn't exist in America, you should just say, how does James Winston then stay in his starting job while throwing all those picks? <laughs> but yeah, it's a similar he's cracked. The, he's truly cracked uh, the code. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, thought, I think right about there. that all the time. I was just dying laughing when I was in the car. Um, all right. Thank you for coming on the show, man. This was fun. Um,